0: Without having to break the bank, inexpensive doesn't have to mean cheap. Check out the show notes to find more about Glary. Twenty watt amplifiers for under fifty dollars. Hard cases for your electric guitar for under eighty. Guitars themselves for under ninety dollars. Come on, folks, check out the show notes. Get a Glary. You're listening to KZOM, Olean on Public Radio. I, T.B. E. Spitzer, and Farmer Dave, here once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu mythos. Its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits. Like the dreamlands or things of a weird nature that are Lovecraftian leaning. Once more, we head to those dark woods, further feeling those malevolent forces upon us. Once again, we walk down the lightless stone staircase in the middle of nowhere. You're listening to KZOM. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. It's one of our reading episodes. And we have a variety of people reading various ghost stories from various writers, such as H.P. Lovecraft, Edgar Allan Poe, Algernon Blackwood, and Charlotte Gilman, to name a few. So most of these episodes are roughly about half an hour or more, and there's going to be two episodes per story. And yeah, that's what we've got going on, some spooky stories for you to listen to, with some cool, snare drums going on in the background. And yeah, not a whole bunch of noise to interrupt what's going on. So I hope you enjoy it. Some spooky stories. <laughs> And if you are lucky enough, at the very beginning of October, HP Lovecraft Film Festival, and there is also going to be a second HP Lovecraft Film Festival that's going to be less in person and more of a streaming thing. Check us out on there. Dave's got some stuff going on on that. I'm going to have some stuff going on on that. And also, I'd like to welcome our newest sponsor, Taza Chocolate, Stone Ground Chocolate. And you know what? This is super minimally processed. If you're like me and you have a bunch of food allergies, you can't do dairy. They have dairy-free chocolates. They they, they use dairy alternatives. Uh, minimally processed, of course, organic. I love them. You love them. Taza chocolates. They they come in those discs that you can break up and put into hot beverages and stir up. Ooh, I love it so much. Anyway, Oz. So why not? I don't know, sit down with a nice warm beverage. We've got the tea that you can get, we've got the coffee you can get. I don't know, maybe microwave some
1: psychedelic water, baby. Ghostly Horror Stories. By Cliff Stone of Sydney, Australia. The Black Cat by Edgar Allan Poe. For the most wild yet most homely narrative which I'm about to pen, I neither expect nor solicit belief. Mad indeed would I be to expect it in a case where my very senses reject their own evidence. Yet mad I am not and very surely do I not dream. But tomorrow I die and today I would unburthen my soul. My immediate purpose is to place before the world plainly, succinctly and without comment a series of mere household events. In their consequences, these events have terrified, have tortured, have destroyed me. Yet I will not attempt to expound them. To me, they have presented little but horror. To many, they will seem less terrible than Baroque's. Hereafter, perhaps some intellect may be found which will reduce my phantasm to the commonplace, some intellect more calm, more logical and far less excitable than my own, which will perceive, in the circumstances I detail with awe, nothing more than an ordinary succession of very natural causes and effects. From my infancy I was noted for the docility and humanity of my disposition. My tenderness of heart was even so conspicuous as to make me the jest of my companions. I was especially fond of animals, And was indulged by my parents with a great variety of pets with these i spent most of my time and never was so happy as when feeding and caressing them this peculiarity of character grew with my growth and in my manhood i derived from it one of my principal sources of pleasure to those who have cherished an affection for a faithful and sagacious dog i need hardly be at the trouble of explaining the nature or the intensity of the gratification thus derivable. There is something in the unselfish and self-sacrificing love of a brute which goes directly to the heart of him who has had frequent occasion to test the paltry friendship and gossamer fidelity of mere man. I married early, and was happy to find in my wife a disposition not uncongenial with my own. Observing my partiality for domestic pets, she lost no opportunity of procuring those of the most agreeable kind. We had birds, goldfish, a fine dog, rabbits, a small monkey, and a cat. This latter was a remarkably large and beautiful animal, entirely black and sagacious to an astonishing degree. In speaking of his intelligence, my wife, who at heart was not a little tinctured with superstition, made frequent allusion to the ancient popular notion which regarded all black cats as witches in disguise. Not that she was ever serious upon this point, and I mentioned the matter at all for no better reason than that it happens just now to be remembered. Pluto, this was the cat's name, was my favourite pet and playmate. I alone fed him, and he attended me wherever I went about the house. It was even with difficulty that I could prevent him from following me through the streets. Our friendship lasted, in this manner, for several years, during which my general temperament and character, through the instrumentality of the fiend intemperance, had, I blush to confess it, experienced a radical alteration for the worse. I grew, day by day, more moody, more irritable, more regardless of the feelings of others. I suffered myself to use intemperate language to my wife. At length, I even offered her personal violence. My pets, of course, were made to feel the change in my disposition. I not only neglected, but ill-used them. For Pluto, however, I still retained sufficient regard to restrain me from maltreating him, as I made no scruple of maltreating the rabbits, the monkey, or even the dog, when, by accident or through affection they came in my way. But my disease grew upon me. For what disease is like alcohol? And at length, even Pluto, who was now becoming old and consequently somewhat peevish, even Pluto began to experience the effects of my ill temper. One night, returning home, much intoxicated from one of my haunts about town, I fancied that the cat avoided my presence. I seized him. When... In his fright at my violence, he inflicted a slight wound upon my hand with his teeth. The fury of a demon instantly possessed me. I knew myself no longer. My original soul seemed at once to take its flight from my body, and a more than fiendish malevolence, gin-nurtured, thrilled every fibre of my frame. I took from my waistcoat pocket a penknife, opened it, grasped the poor beast by the throat, and deliberately cut one of its eyes from the socket. I blush, I burn, I shudder when I pen the damnable atrocity. When reason returned with the morning, when I had slept off the fumes of the night's debauch, I experienced a sentiment half of horror, half of remorse, for the crime of which I had been guilty. But it was, at best, a feeble and equivocal feeling, and the soul remained untouched. I again plunged into excess and soon drowned in wine, All memory of the deed. In the meantime, the cat slowly recovered. The socket of the lost eye presented, it is true, a frightful appearance, but he no longer appeared to suffer any pain. He went about the house as usual, but as might be expected, fled in extreme terror at my approach. I had so much of my old heart left as to be at first grieved by this evident dislike on the part of a creature which had once so loved me. But this feeling soon gave place to irritation, and then came, as if to my final and irrevocable overthrow, the spirit of perverseness. Of this spirit philosophy takes no account. Yet I am not more sure that my soul lives than I am that perverseness is one of the primitive impulses of the human heart, one of the indivisible primary faculties or sentiments which give direction to the character of man. Who has not a hundred times found himself committing a vile or silly action for no other reason than because he knows he should not? Have we not a perpetual inclination in the teeth of our best judgment to violate that which is law merely because we understand it to be such? This spirit of perverseness, I say, Came to my final overthrow. It was this unfathomable longing of the soul to vex itself, to offer violence to its own nature, to do wrong for the wrong's sake only, that urged me to continue and finally to consummate the injury I had inflicted upon the unoffending brute. One morning, in cool blood, I slipped a noose about its neck and hung it to the limb of a tree. Hung it with the tears streaming from my eyes, and with the bitterest remorse at my heart. Hung it because I knew that it had loved me, and because I felt it had given me no reason of offence. Hung it because I knew that in doing so I was committing a sin, a deadly sin that would so jeopardize my immortal soul as to place it, if such a thing were possible, even beyond the reach of the infinite mercy of the most merciful and most terrible God." On the night of the day on which this cruel deed was done, I was aroused from sleep by the cry of fire. The curtains of my bed were in flames. The whole house was blazing. It was with great difficulty that my wife, a servant, and myself made our escape from the conflagration. The destruction was complete. My entire worldly wealth was swallowed up, and I resigned myself thenceforward to despair. I am above the weakness of seeking to establish a sequence of cause and effect between the disaster and the atrocity, but I am detailing a chain of facts and wish not to leave even a possible link imperfect. On the days succeeding the fire I visited the ruins. The walls, with one exception, had fallen in. This exception was found in a compartment wall, not very thick, which stood about the middle of the house and against which had rested the head of my bed. The plastering had here in great measure resisted the action of the fire, a fact which I attributed to its having been recently spread. About this wall, a dense crowd were collected, and many persons seemed to be examining a particular portion of it with very minute and eager attention. The words strange and singular and other similar expressions excited my curiosity. I approached and saw, as if graven in bas-relief upon the white surface, the figure of a gigantic cat. The impression was given with an accuracy truly marvellous. There was a rope about the animal's neck. When I first beheld this apparition, for I could scarcely regard it as less, my wonder and my terror were extreme. But at length, reflection came to my aid. The cat, I remembered, had been hung in a garden adjacent to the house. Upon the alarm of fire, this garden had been immediately filled by the crowd, by someone of whom the animal must have been cut from the tree and thrown through an open window into my chamber. This had probably been done with the view of arousing me from sleep. The falling of other walls had compressed the victim of my cruelty into the substance of the freshly spread plaster, the lime of which, with the flames and the ammonia from the carcass, had then accomplished the portraiture as I saw it. Although I thus readily accounted to my reason, if not altogether to my conscience for the startling fact just detailed, it did not the less fail to make a deep impression upon my fancy. For months I could not rid myself of the phantasm of the cat, and during this period there came back into my spirit a half-sentiment There seemed, but was not, remorse. I went so far as to regret the loss of the animal and to look about me among the vile haunts which I now habitually frequented for another pet of the same species and of somewhat similar appearance, with which to supply its place. One night, as I sat half stupefied in a den of more than infamy, my attention was suddenly drawn to some black object reposing upon the head of one of the immense hogsheads of gin or of rum which constituted the chief furniture of the apartment. I had been looking steadily at the top of this hogshead for some minutes and what now caused me surprise was the fact that I had not sooner perceived the object thereupon. I approached it and touched it with my hand. It was a black cat, a very large one, fully as large as Pluto, and closely resembling him in every respect but one. Pluto had not a white hair upon any portion of his body, but this cat had a large, although indefinite, splotch of white, covering nearly the whole region of the breast. Upon my touching him, he immediately arose, purred loudly, rubbed against my hand, and appeared delighted with my notice. This, then, was the very creature of which I was in search." I had once offered to purchase it of the landlord, but this person made no claim to it, knew nothing of it, had never seen it before. I continued my caresses, and when I prepared to go home, the animal evinced a disposition to accompany me. I permitted it to do so, occasionally stooping and patting it as I proceeded. When it reached the house, it domesticated itself at once and became immediately a great favourite with my wife. For my own part, I soon found a dislike to it arising with me. This was just the reverse of what I had anticipated. But I know not how or why it was, its evident fondness for myself rather disgusted and annoyed. By slow degrees, these feelings of disgust and annoyance rose into the bitterness of hatred. I avoided the creature, a certain sense of shame and the remembrance of my former deed of cruelty preventing me from physically abusing it. I did not, for some weeks, strike or otherwise violently ill-use it, but gradually, very gradually, I came to look upon it with unutterable loathing, and to flee silently from its odious presence as from the breath of a pestilence. What added, no doubt, to my hatred of the beast was the discovery, on the morning after I brought it home, that, like Pluto, it also had been deprived of one of its eyes. This circumstance however only endeared it to my wife, who as I have already said possessed in a high degree that humanity of feeling which had once been my distinguishing trait and the source of many of my simplest and purest pleasures. With my aversion to this cat however its partiality for myself seemed to increase. It followed my footsteps with a pertinacity which it would be difficult to make the reader comprehend. Whenever I sat it would crouch beneath my chair, or spring upon my knees, covering me with its loathsome caresses. If I arose to walk, it would get between my feet and thus nearly throw me down, or fastening its long and sharp claws in my dress, clamber, in this manner, to my breast. At such times, although I longed to destroy it with a blow, I was yet withheld from doing so, partly by a memory of my former crime, but chiefly, let me confess it at once, By absolute dread of the beast. This dread was not exactly a dread of physical evil and yet I should be at a loss how otherwise to define it. I am almost ashamed to own, yes even in this felon's cell, I am almost ashamed to own that the terror and horror with which the animal inspired me had been heightened by one of the merest chimeras it would be possible to conceive. My wife, had called my attention more than once to the character of the mark of white hair, of which I have spoken, and which constituted the sole visible difference between the strange beast and the one I had destroyed. The reader will remember that this mark, although large, had been originally very indefinite, but by slow degrees, degrees nearly imperceptible, and which for a long time my reason struggled to reject as fanciful, It had, at length, assumed a rigorous distinctness of outline. It was now the representation of an object that I shudder to name. And for this, above all, I loathed and dreaded, and would have rid myself of the monster had I dared. It was now, I say, the image of a hideous, of a ghastly thing, of the gallows. O mournful and terrible engine of horror and of crime, of agony! And of death. And now was I indeed wretched beyond the wretchedness of mere humanity, and a brute beast whose fellow I had contemptuously destroyed, a brute beast to work out for me, for me, a man, fashioned in the image of the high God, so much of insufferable woe. Alas, neither by day nor by night knew I the blessing of rest any more. During the former the creature left me no moment alone, and in the latter I started hourly from dreams of unutterable fear to find the hot breath of the thing upon my face, and its vast weight, an incarnate nightmare that I had no power to shake off, incumbent eternally upon my heart. Beneath the pressure of torments such as these, the feeble remnant of the good within me succumbed evil thoughts became my sole intimates, the darkest and most evil of thoughts. The moodiness of my usual temper increased to hatred of all things and of all mankind, while, from the sudden, frequent and ungovernable outbursts of a fury to which I now blindly abandoned myself, my uncomplaining wife, alas, was the most usual and the most patient of sufferers. One day, she accompanied me upon some household errand into the cellar of the old building which our poverty compelled us to inhabit. The cat followed me down the steep stairs, and nearly throwing me headlong, exasperated me to madness. Uplifting an axe, and forgetting in my wrath the childish dread which had hitherto stayed by hand, I aimed a blow at the animal which, of course, would have proved instantly fatal had it descended as I wished but this blow was arrested by the hand of my wife. Goaded by the interference into a rage more than demoniacal, I withdrew my arm from her grasp and buried the axe in her brain. She fell dead upon the spot without a groan. This hideous murder accomplished, I set myself forthwith and with entire deliberation to the task of concealing the body. I knew that I could not remove it from the house either by day or by night, without the risk of being observed by the neighbours. Many projects entered my mind. At one period I thought of cutting the corpse into minute fragments and destroying them by fire. At another, I resolved to dig a grave for it in the floor of the cellar. Again, I deliberated about casting it in the well in the yard, about packing it in a box, as if merchandise with the usual arrangements and so getting a porter to take it from the house. Finally, I hit upon what I considered a far better expedient than either of these. I determined to wall it up in the cellar, as the monks of the Middle Ages are recorded to have walled up their victims. For a purpose such as this, the cellar was well adapted. Its walls were loosely constructed and had lately been plastered throughout with a rough plaster which the dampness of the atmosphere had prevented from hardening. Moreover. In one of the walls was a projection caused by a false chimney or fireplace that had been filled up and made to resemble the red of the cellar. I made no doubt that I could readily displace the bricks at this point, insert the corpse, and wall the hole up as before so that no eye could detect anything suspicious. And in this calculation I was not deceived. By means of a crowbar, I easily dislodged the bricks and having carefully deposited the body against the inner wall, I propped it in that position, while with little trouble I relayed the whole structure as it originally stood. Having procured mortar and sand and hair with every possible precaution, I prepared a plaster which could not be distinguished from the old, and with this I very carefully went over the new brickwork. When I had finished I felt satisfied that all was right, The wall did not present the slightest appearance of having been disturbed. The rubbish on the floor was picked up with the minutest care. I looked around triumphantly and said to myself, ''Here, at least then, my labour has not been in vain.'' My next step was to look for the beast which had been the cause of so much wretchedness, for I had at length firmly resolved to put it to death. Had I been able to meet with it at the moment... There could have been no doubt of its fate. But it appeared that the crafty animal had been alarmed at the violence of my previous anger and forbore to present itself in my present mood. It is impossible to describe, or to imagine, the deep, the blissful sense of relief which the absence of the detested creature occasioned in my bosom. It did not make its appearance during the night, and thus, for one night at least, since its introduction into the house... I soundly and tranquilly slept. I slept even with the burden of murder upon my soul. The second and the third day passed, and still my tormentor came not. Once again I breathed as a free man. The monster in terror had fled the premises forever. I should behold it no more. My happiness was supreme. The guilt of my dark deed disturbed me but little, Some few inquiries had been made, but these had been readily answered. Even a search had been instituted, but of course nothing was to be discovered. I looked upon my future felicity as secured. Upon the fourth day of the assassination, a party of the police came, very unexpectedly, into the house and proceeded again to make rigorous investigation of the premises. Secure, however, in the inscrutability of my place of concealment, I felt no embarrassment whatever. The officer's baby accompanied them in their search. They left no nook or corner unexplored. At length, for the third or fourth time, they descended into the cellar. I quivered not in a muscle. My heart beat calmly as that of one who slumbers in innocence. I walked the cellar from end to end. I folded my arms upon my bosom and roamed easily to and fro. The police were thoroughly satisfied and prepared to depart. The glee at my heart was too strong to be restrained. I burned to say if but one word by way of triumph and to render doubly sure their assurance of my guiltlessness. Gentlemen, I said at last as the party ascended the steps, I delight to have allayed your suspicions. I wish you all health and a little more courtesy. By the by, gentlemen, this... This is a very well-constructed house. In the rabid desire to say something easily, I scarcely knew what I uttered at all. I may say an excellently well-constructed house. These walls... Are you going, gentlemen? These walls are solidly put together. And here, through the mere frenzy of bravado, I rapped heavily with a cane which I held in my hand upon that very portion of the brickwork behind which stood the corpse of the wife of my bosom. But may God shield and deliver me from the fangs of the arch-fiend. No sooner had the reverberation of my blows sunk into silence than I was answered by a voice from within the tomb, by a cry, at first muffled and broken, like the sobbing of a child, and then quickly swelling into one long, loud, and continuous scream, utterly anomalous and inhuman, a howl, a wailing shriek, half of horror and half of triumph, such as might have arisen only out of hell, conjointly from the throats of the damned in their agony and of the demons that exult in the damnation. Of my own thoughts it is folly to speak. Swooning, I staggered to the opposite wall. For one instant, the party upon the stairs remained motionless, through extremity of terror and of awe. In the next, a dozen stout arms were toiling at the wall. It fell bodily. The corpse, already greatly decayed and clotted with gore, stood erect before the eyes of the spectators. Upon its head, with red extended mouth and solitary eye of fire, sat the hideous beast whose craft had seduced me into murder and whose informing voice had consigned me to the hangman. I had walled the monster up within the tomb. End of the Black Cat.
0: Welcome to Innsmouth, stranger.
2: Hi, I'm Rob Whiten from the Innsmouth Book Club. Join me and my fellow guide, John Chadwick, as we take you on a fortnightly tour of Innsmouth. We visit places such as the Picture House, the Library and Innsmouth Museum to discuss all aspects of weird fiction, whether it be book, film, music, TV or art. As well as that, we stop over at the Gilman House to have a chat with a resident guest. That includes authors, artists, musicians, in fact, Lovecraftian creatives, of all types you can find our free shows on Patreon and there you can also sign up as a patron which brings you bonus content plus a monthly PDF copy of Innsmouth News which features articles author spotlights all the latest news and reviews and more you can find us at patreon.com forward slash InnsmouthBC we hope to see you soon because remember Innsmouth isn't just a place, it's a state of mind.
0: This month, Bandwidth is brought to you by Psychedelic Water. Legal Psychedelic suspended in green tea, and then put inside of a can for you. Psychedelic Water. Who needs a tilling House resonator when you've got psychedelic water? Are you a curvy girl? Do you know a curvy girl? You love a curvy girl. Check out the show links for Curvy Girl. Plus size clothing for plus size women. Oh, Glary. Find student instruments, beginner's instruments. If you want to modify a guitar, check out Glary. If you want to get into guitars, if you love guitars, Glary. Things from another world. It's a. Store that has art, it has toys, it has comics, graphic novels. It is the place if you like that kind of stuff. Dave and I have talked about it in the show before. They were ever a sponsor. Dave likes to check out their stuff. I like to check out their stuff. They're pretty cool. Toys, art, graphic design, not graphic design, graphic novels for you. Things from another world. Check out the show notes. Uh, Check out the links. On on our website, PGTTCM, we've got specific stuff there to let you know what they've got going on for specials. Anyway, thank you again so much. Did you know that there is a THC derivative that's legal called Delta 8? Not to be confused with the Delta variant, but Delta 8, yeah. Uh, You can get it in chewable form, and it's sold at uh what, what, what what's what's golden goat cbd one of our sponsors yeah you can get some delta eight and you can also pick up some cbd chewables gummies they've got smokables for the delta eight and they've got all kinds of stuff for cbd and they can help you out uh, check the show notes golden goat and while you're in the show notes hey Do you know about Donner? Donner has so many amazing musical instruments from all kinds, mandolins, banjos. They've got drums. They've got amplifiers. They've got guitars. They've got all kinds of stuff, and they ship worldwide. Check out Donner. I think you're going to like it, and I think Donner's going to have a good deal for you. So I, I love their electric guitars. A lot of the music that I perform for the show is either on one brand or it's on a Donner. So check out Donner. And check out some savings. All right. Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that will tell you how to support the show Now to support our guests. And thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe. And remember, patrons get priority access to... Asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know, uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show too. It's The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends.
1: Recording by Cliff Stone of Sydney, Australia. Story 10. By water. The night before young Larson left to take up his new appointment in Egypt, he went to the clairvoyant. He neither believed nor disbelieved. He felt no interest, for he already knew his past and did not wish to know his future. Just to please me, Jim, the girl pleaded, the woman is wonderful. Before I had been five minutes with her, she told me your initials, so there must be something in it. She read your thought He smiled indulgently. Even I can do that. But the girl was in earnest. He yielded, and that night at his farewell dinner, he came to give his report of the interview. The result was meagre and unconvincing. Money was coming to him. He was soon to make a voyage, and he would never marry. So you see how silly it all is? He laughed, for they were to be married when his first promotion came. He gave the details, however, making a little story of it in the way he knew she loved. "'But was that all, Jim?' the girl asked, looking rather hard into his face. "'Aren't you hiding something from me?' He hesitated a moment, then burst out laughing at her clever discernment. "'There was a little more,' he confessed. "'But you take it all so seriously. I...' He had to tell it then, of course.' The woman had told him a lot of gibberish about friendly and unfriendly elements. She said water was unfriendly to me. I was to be careful of water or else I should come to harm by it. Fresh water only, he hastened to add, seeing that the idea of shipwreck was in her mind. Drowning? the girl asked quickly. Yes, he admitted with reluctance, but still laughing. She did say drowning, though drowning in no ordinary way. The girl's face showed uneasiness a moment. "'What does that mean, drowning in no ordinary way?' she asked, a catch in her breath. But that he could not tell her because he did not know himself. He gave, therefore, the exact words. "'You will drown, but will not know you drown.' It was unwise of him. He wished afterwards he had invented a happier report, or had kept this detail back.' I'm safe in Egypt anyhow, he laughed. I shall be a clever man if I can find enough water in the desert to do me harm. And all the way from Trieste to Alexandria, he remembered the promise she had extracted, that he would never once go on the Nile unless duty made it imperative for him to do so. He kept that promise like the lateral faithful soul he was. His love was equal to the somewhat quixotic sacrifice it occasionally involved. Fresh water in Egypt there was practically none either and in any case the natron works where his duty lay had their headquarters some distance out into the desert. The river with its banks of welcome refreshing verdure was not even visible. Months passed quickly and the time for leave came within measurable distance. In the long interval luck had played the cards kindly for him vacancies had occurred early promotion seemed likely and his letters were full of plans to bring her out to share a little house of their own his health however had not improved the dryness did not suit him even in this short period his blood had thinned his nervous system deteriorated and contrary to the doctor's prophecy the waterless air had told upon his sleep a damp climate liked him best and once the sun had touched him with its fiery finger. His letters made no mention of this. He described the life to her, the work, the sport, the pleasant people, and his chances of increased pay in early marriage. And a week before he sailed, he rode out upon a final act of duty to inspect the latest diggings his company were making. His course lay some 20 miles into the desert behind El Chabak and towards the limestone hills of Heidi, and he went alone, carrying lunch and tea, for it was the weekly holiday of Friday and the men were not at work. The accident was ordinary enough. On his way back in the heat of early afternoon, his pony stumbled against the boulder on the treacherous desert film, threw him heavily, broke the girth, bolted before he could seize the reins again, and left him stranded some ten or twelve miles from home. There was a pain in his knee that made walking difficult, a buzzing in his head that troubled sight and made the landscape swim, While worse than either. His provisions, fastened to the saddle, had vanished with the frightened pony into those blazing leagues of sand. He was alone in the desert, beneath the pitiless afternoon sun, twelve miles of utterly exhausting country between him and safety. Under normal conditions, he could have covered the distance in four hours, reaching home by dark, but his knee pained him so that a mile an hour proved the best he could possibly do. He reflected a few minutes. The wisest, of course, was to sit down and wait till the pony told its obvious story to the stable and help should come. And this is what he did, for the scorching heat and glare were dangerous. They were terrible. He was shaken and bewildered by his fall, hungry and weak into the bargain, and an hour's painful scrambling over the baked and burning little gorges must have speedily caused complete prostration. He sat down and rubbed his aching knee. It was quite a little adventure. Yet though he knew the desert might not be lightly trifled with, he felt at the moment nothing more than this, and the amusing description of it he would give in his letter, or intoxicating thought. By word of mouth. In the heat of the sun, he began to feel drowsy. A soft torpor crept over him. He dozed. He fell asleep. It was a long, a dreamless sleep, for when he woke at length, the sun had just gone down. The dusk lay awfully upon the enormous desert, and the air was chilly. The cold had waked him. Quickly, as though on purpose, the red glow faded from the sky, The first stars shone. It was dark. The heavens were deep violet. He looked round and realised that his sense of direction had gone entirely. Great hunger was in him. The cold already was bitter as the wind rose, but the pain in his knee having eased, he got up and walked a little, and in a moment lost sight of the spot where he had been lying. The shadowy desert swallowed it. Ah, he realised, this is not an English field or more. I'm in the desert. The safe thing to do was to remain exactly where he was. Only thus could the rescuers find him. Once he wandered, he was done for. It was strange the search party had not arrived. To keep warm, however, he was compelled to move, so he made a little pile of stones to mark the place and walked round and round it in a circle of some dozen yards diameter. He limped badly, and the hunger gnawed dreadfully, but after all the adventure was not so terrible. The amusing side of it kept uppermost still. Though fragile in body, his spirit was not unduly timid or imaginative. He could last out the night, or if the worst came to the worst the next day as well. But when he watched the little group of stones, he saw that there were dozens of them, scores, hundreds, thousands of these little groups of stones. The desert's face, of course, is thickly strewn with them. The original one was lost in the first five minutes. So he sat down again. But the biting cold and the wind that licked his very skin beneath the light clothing soon forced him up again. It was ominous and the night huge and shelterless. The shaft of green zodiacal light that hung so strangely in the western sky for hours had faded away. The stars were out in their bright thousands. No guide was anywhere. The wind moaned and puffed among the sandy mounds. The vast sheet of desert stretched appallingly upon the world. He heard the jackal's cry. And with the jackal's cry came suddenly the unwelcome realisation that no play was in this adventure any more but that a bleak reality stared at him through the surrounding darkness. He faced it at bay. He was genuinely lost. Thought blocked in him. I must be calm and think, he said aloud. His voice woke no echo. It was small and dead. Something gigantic ate it instantly. He got up and walked again. Why did no one come? Hours had passed. The pony had long ago found it stable, or had it run madly in another direction altogether. He worked out possibilities, tightening his belt. The cold was searching. He never had been, never could be warm again. The hot sunshine of a few hours ago seemed the merest dream. Unfamiliar with hardship, he knew not what to do. But he took his coat and shirt off, vigorously rubbed his skin where the dried perspiration of the afternoon still caused clammy shivers, swung his arms furiously like a London cabman, and quickly dressed again. Though the wind upon his bare back was fearful, he felt warmer a little. He lay down exhausted, sheltered by an overhanging limestone crag, and took snatches of fitful dog sleep, while the wind drove overhead and the dry sand pricked his skin. One face continually was near him, one pair of tender eyes, two dear hands smoothed him. He smelt the perfume of light brown hair. It was all natural enough. His whole thought, in his misery, ran to her in England. England, where there was soft fresh grass, big sheltering trees, hemlock and honeysuckle in the hedges. While the hard black desert guarded him, and consciousness dipped away at little intervals under this dry and pitiless Egyptian sky. It was perhaps five in the morning when a voice spoke and he started up with a horrid jerk, the voice of that clairvoyant woman. The sentence died away into the darkness, but one word remained, water. At first he wondered, but at once explanation came. Cause and effect were obvious. The clue was physical. His body needed water, and so the thought came up into his mind. He was thirsty. This was the moment when fear first really touched him. Hunger was manageable, more or less, for a day or two, certainly. But thirst. Thirst and the desert were an evil pair that by cumulative suggestion gathering since childhood days brought terror in. Once in the mind, it could not be dislodged. In spite of his best efforts, the ghastly thing grew passionately because his thirst grew too. He had smoked much, had eaten spice things at lunch, had breathed in alkali with the dry, scorched air. He searched for a cool flint pebble to put into his burning mouth but found only angular scraps of dusty limestone. There were no pebbles here. The cold helped a little to counteract but already he knew in himself subconsciously the dread of something that was coming. What was it? He tried to hide the thought and bury it out of sight. The utter futility of his tiny strength against the power of the universe appalled him. And then he knew the merciless sun was on the way, already rising. Its return was like the presage of execution to him. It came. With true horror, he watched the marvellous swift dawn break over the sandy sea. The eastern sky glowed hurriedly as from crimson fires. Ridges, not noticeable in the starlight, turned black in endless series, like flat-topped billows of a frozen ocean. Wind streaks of blue and yellow followed as the sky dropped sheets of faint light upon the wind-eaten cliffs and showed their undersides. They did not advance, They waited till the sun was up, and then they moved. They rose and sank. They shifted as the sun lifted them and the shadows crept away. But in an hour, there would be no shadows anymore. There would be no shade. The little groups of stones began to dance. It was horrible. The unbroken huge expanse lay around him, warming up. Twelve hours of blazing hell to come. Already the monstrous desert glared, each bit familiar, since each bit was a repetition of the bit before, behind, on either side. It laughed at guidance and direction. He rose and walked, for miles he walked, though how many, north, south or west, he knew not. The frantic thing was in him now, the fury of the desert. He took its pace, its endless, tireless stride, "'the stride of the burning murderous desert that is waterless. "'He felt it alive, a blindly heaving desire in it "'to reduce him to its conditionless, awful dryness. "'He felt, yet knowing this was feverish and not to be believed, "'that his own small life lay on its mighty surface, "'a mere dot in space, a mere heap of little stones. "'His emotions, his fears, his hopes, his ambition, his love, mere bundled group of little, unimportant stones that danced with apparent activity for a moment, then were merged in the undifferentiated surface underneath. He was included in a purpose greater than his own. The will made a plucky effort then. A night and a day, he laughed, while his lips cracked smartingly with the stretching of the skin. What is it? Many a chap has lasted days and days, Yes, only he was not of that rare company. He was ordinary, unaccustomed to privation, weak, untrained of spirit, unacquainted with stern resistance. He knew not how to spare himself. The desert struck him where it pleased, all over. It played with him. His tongue was swollen, the parched throat could not swallow. He sank. An hour he lay there, just wit enough in him to choose the top of a mound where he could be most easily seen. He lay two hours, three, four hours. The heat blazed down upon him like a furnace. The sky, when he opened his eyes, once was empty. Then a speck became visible in the blue expanse, and presently another speck. They came from nowhere. They hovered very high, almost out of sight. They appeared. They disappeared. They reappeared. Nearer and nearer, they swung down in sweeping, stealthy circles, little dancing groups of them, miles away, but ever drawing closer. The vultures. He had strained his ears so long for sounds of feet and voices that it seemed he could no longer hear at all. Hearing had ceased within him. Then came the water dreams with their agonising torture. He heard that heard it running in silvery streams and rivulets across green English meadows. It rippled with silvery music. He heard it splash. He dipped hands and feet and head in it in deep, clear pools of generous depth. He drank. With his skin he drank, not with mouth and throat alone. Ice clinked in effervescent, sparkling water against the glass. He swam and plunged, "'Water gushed freely over back and shoulders, "'gallons and gallons of it, bathfuls and to spare, "'a flood of gushing, crystal, cool, life-giving liquid.' "'And then he stood in a beechwood "'and felt the streaming deluge of delicious summer rain upon his face, "'heard it drip luxuriantly upon a million thirsty leaves. "'The wet trunks shone, the damp moss spread its perfume, "'ferns waved heavily in the moist atmosphere.' "'He was soaked to the skin in it. "'A mountain torrent fresh from fields of snow "'foamed boiling past "'and the spray fell in a shower upon his cheeks and hair. "'He dived head foremost. "'Ah, he was up to the neck "'and she was with him. "'They were underwater together. "'He saw her eyes gleaming into his own "'beneath the copious flood. "'The voice, however, was not hers.' "'You will drown, yet you will not know you drown.' His swollen tongue called out a name, but no sound was audible. He closed his eyes. There came sweet unconsciousness. A sound in that instant was audible, though. It was a voice. Voices, and the thud of animal hooves upon the sand. The specks had vanished from the sky as mysteriously as they came, And as though in answer to the sound, he made a movement, an automatic, unconscious movement. He did not know he moved, and the body, uncontrolled, lost its precarious balance. He rolled, but he did not know he rolled. Slowly, over the edge of the sloping mound of sand, he turned sideways. Like a log of wood, he slid gradually, turning over and over, nothing to stop him to the bottom. A few feet only, and not even steep, just steep enough to keep rolling slowly. There was a splash, but he did not know there was a splash. They found him in a pool of water, one of those rare pools the desert Bedouin mark preciously for their own. He had lain within three yards of it for hours. He was drowned, but he did not know he drowned end of by water